Hey guys, this is M from Our Black Nerdy 20s, or sorry, My Black Nerdy 20s. I hope you brought a drink, brought a snap, but I hope your drink's not tea, because it's about to be spilled. Time for the next episode. Well, for this episode, this will be coming out around maybe a week or two before Thanksgiving. So I think we should probably have some time to talk about things that we're thankful for, or in my case, what I'm not thankful for. And you want to hear what I'm not thankful for today? I'm not thankful for children and their parents in public spaces. Now, like most millennials or Gen, older Gen Z, I'm actually not sure what part of the generational gap I'm in. Because I'm like, I was born in 96, which is apparently the cutoff for millennials, but also apparently the cutoff for Gen Z. So I don't know which one I fall into. That's like a mini existential crisis discussion for another day. I have to, I, I have to assume, I have to think about that and see how it affects me and my mental well-being. But thankfulness and being kind to people in public spaces. As I said in my introduction, I work at a museum and a library. So those are pretty public spaces. Well, the library is more public than the museum because you have to pay to get in the museum. Unless it's our free day. But um, have you ever noticed, and I'm sure everyone's complained about this before, just how ungrateful people get closer to the holiday season? Now, I know some people experience this with the church crowd at restaurants. At least my friends who have worked at, like, Denny's or IHOP, and they have families come in on brunch on Sundays, and the parents and grandparents always give the waiters a stink eye anytime it takes longer than five minutes to get them their simple stack of buttermilk pancakes or little Tommy's chocolate chip blueberry pancake combination that you really can't do but they just insist because Tommy desperately needs that or else he's gonna flip the fuck out for whatever reason yeah stuff like that now while I was at the museum this weekend because I work every weekend because they played me um we had an interesting situation where there was someone who had, like, a mountain climber's carrying bag for their toddler. And I don't know if you know anything anything about museums and trying to keep the art safe, but you usually can't wear book bags or at least really big things on your back if it's a museum that has, like, sculpture pieces or stuff, like, in the middle that's not protected by glass containers. Because those things are expensive. Like really, really expensive to get those containers and to nail everything down there. If you're not in a well-funded museum like the Cleveland or uh, the MoMA or the Met or like anything that the Smithsonian owns, because Smithsonian makes a shit ton of money. Um, I mean, also, it's part it's part with the government, so they give them a lot of money, too. Then <laughs> um, it's kind of up in the air whether or not you're going to have enough money to protect everything that way and I mean you'll have insurance every museum's required to have enough insurance to cover all the pieces and now I'm just rambling but most museums will have a policy about backpacks or large baby carriers on your back um my museum doesn't let anyone wear anything on their back uh whether it's a small little um 
uh, I forget what they're called, but it's the bag that, um, is really a big fad in anime group now, and I guess it's been a fad for a while where they put all their pins and, and shit on their, on their bags or their BTS, Yuri on Ice bullshit, record, like, stuff. So, what is that called? I'll just, I'll just ask one of my friends. They have, like, seven of them already. Um... So even those tiny ones, we don't let people wear on their back. They have to hold them like it's a purse or they have to wear them in their front because if you take a wrong turn, then you can knock something over, scratch something. So it's just a really bad idea. So this dude, um, probably in his like mid-30s, early 40s, and before you ask, yes, he was, um, comes into the museum no one at the front desk saw him wearing this, so maybe he had it in a stroller, maybe he was wearing it on his front, maybe he just, maybe they just didn't see it, I don't know, it gets really busy. Um, comes in wearing this giant ass mountain carrier bag, and he has his, I want to say maybe one and a half, two year old in it, and they're standing up, jumping and like waving their hands all over the place. And I'm over here like, whoa. <laughs> um, I was getting ready to go and say something to the dude, but one of the floor supervisors, um, what we call like our gallery associate team, the people who are who just stand there and watch you while you're looking at the art to make sure you don't touch the art or like, spit on the art or as someone else did yesterday um put a sticky note on the art um so one of their supervisors goes over and tells him that he's not allowed to have that on his back and it's a museum policy and that he either needs to check the thing in at the front desk so no one can take it or he has to put it somewhere else and carry his kid or he has to go um, and the dude, now clearly she didn't say it like that. I'm sure she did something like, uh, hello, sir. Um, are you aware of our, uh, backpack policy? Um, so just for the safety of, uh, our art and different sculptures in the gallery spaces, we're not allowed to wear anything large on our back. So you can take the, I can take you to the front desk. You can check it in or something, something really nice and customer service like that. Um, instead of, like, being a decent and understanding human being, the guy goes off in front of this large group of people, and his own kid, um, starts cussing her the fuck out, and going on and on, and he's like, I don't understand why I have to do this, it's just a fucking book bag, um, what am I supposed to do with my kid, they're tired, I have, I can't carry them all, and I'm just like, what, what do you mean you can't carry them? Um, you're literally carrying them on your back right now. But he goes off on this poor girl. And the even worse thing about it is that he doesn't know and everyone else surrounding uh, in this situation doesn't know is this is her maybe third weekend at the museum. She's a brand new floor supervisor. who's just doing her job trying to take the load off of the gallery associate in the space because the room is the area is Packed, and unlike other museums where they might have a gallery associate in every specific gallery, we have to have people in like hallways, like 
in hallway spaces. So each individual gal individual gallery associate could be in charge of looking over six galleries, and we have like sixty people in that space. It's re gets really hard, and they have to keep walking around, or it's it's a mess. It's a real mess, and we need to hire more. But uh, dude goes off for maybe a good three minutes before storming off and saying that he's gonna go talk to our manager and all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, jokes on you, our managers don't come in on the weekend because they're smart and they get paid enough where they don't have to do the grunt work of being there on the busiest days. <laughs> so he had to go and leave a comment card. Now, what I found out happening later is that he went and yelled at the front desk, taking up one of the front desk people's time for another five minutes, meaning other people can get into the museum well, they could still get in because if it's a Sunday, you can basically just walk straight in. And you don't really have to go to the front desk until it's time to validate your parking. Wait, no, you don't even have to validate your parking on Sunday because that's free. Everything's free. Parking, general admission, all of it. The only thing you have to pay for is like if you want something at the cafe or the gift shop or if you want to get into our special exhibitions. But he holds up this whole lot of people who want to get to the special exhibition for five minutes. Then he leaves. Like, he doesn't do anything else. He complains. Uh, and then later, at the end of the day, he calls to complain about the entire situation. And that's when it comes out that I guess he had been at the museum for a whole 30, 45 minutes before someone said anything to him. But even then, it seems a bit extreme to cuss someone out for five minutes. And all of this to say is that isn't it weird that as it gets closer to the holidays that people get a little bit more extreme about this stuff? Because I think I've seen this guy in the museum before. Maybe not with that giant book back carrier, but if you've been to our museum enough, you should know that you're not supposed to have book bags. It's like on a sign. <laughs> You walk in, and the front desk usually catches people to tell them, don't do it unless it's a group that's coming in, the group entrance, and then the docents have to tell them, and that doesn't always happen. I really just don't, under, coming from my perspective, I don't understand the need to get mad at someone to the point where they're gonna, where you're gonna scream and yell especially in front of your children um, over something as small as you can't carry them on your back because you could hurt the, hurt the art. And especially for this other, this kid who's standing up and jumping, they could actually touch some of the art that's hanging up, which we usually don't have to worry about as much. At least for the worry of children touching it, we have to worry about adults touching it. But... It's something that, I, at least in my opinion, a kid will try to touch more, um, especially in our family-friendly spaces. But who knows? Maybe it's just the holidays getting to everyone and you're hating your family or hating the fact that you decide to have children and you're so tired that you have to come to a, pub, a quote-unquote public free area and then just let all of your rage and anger out. I don't know. I've never been mad enough to cuss someone out in public. But 
I've also never had a screaming two-year-old at, like, two in the morning for that reason. So to each their own. <sighs> I would never want a screaming two-year-old at 2 a.m., but I also wouldn't want that to be an excuse to be mad at someone. That poor gallery, uh, floor supervisor, her name's Hannah. She was... I think it was the first time she got yelled at at this job, and I don't think she was expecting it, especially since to her, Sunday was really busy. To me, it was like a pretty chill Sunday, except for our after-church crowd, which is usually like one to three. That's usually when we're at our busiest. Oh, huh, well, that's my short story about people not being thankful. I will definitely have more as time goes on. So I hope you're ready for that. Oh, wait, did you hear that? I think it's time for our daily nerd section. Woo! This daily nerd section is brought to you by no one because I'm not sponsored yet. But if I was going to hazard a guess, it'd be Fire Emblem Three Houses. This tactical RPG. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, no, there's no sponsorship, so I'm not going to use a sponsor voice or anything. But like I said last episode, this episode's going to be talking about Fire Emblem um, Three Houses and just how much I love, hate, and have opinions about this game. So... What's the best way to start off? So, like I said before, Fire Emblem Three Houses is a tactical um, turn-based strategy game with elements that make it kind of similar to like, well, everyone goes with Persona because you're set in a school, you're in a school setting, and you have a month to get everything set up and train your students. Um, I, I got reminded for some reason of. Um, Valkyria Chronicles? I don't know why they reminded me of Valkyria Chronicles. Um, I think it's probably just a third person exploration part, or maybe it was the sto- how the story was presented and the little edgings of anyone that doesn't matter. So, the story of Three Houses is, well, your player character is a teacher at the academy who used to be a famous mercenary, but he's also, he or she's also got the stoic main character vibes of no emotion because they're a cardboard cutout of a human being. And you get to pick between, da-da-da-da, three different houses, which are led by the future rulers of the continent of Fodlin Fantasy Universe 101. Um, so you have Edelgard, Edelgard von Hressveld, who's the princess of the Adrestian Empire. I'm sorry there's going to be a lot of names because I can't think of a good way to explain this game without just giving you as much detail as possible without, and then giving my breakdown of it. And once I give my breakdown, it'll spoilers. Actually, this whole thing is spoilers. So if you don't, if you care about knowing anything or not knowing anything, if you're gonna buy this Switch exclusive RPG series, um, then don't listen to this section or listen to the part where I say big, big, big spoilers because this is just like kind of minor spoilers. None of the big spoilers happen until about like halfway through the game. Anyway, so you have Edel- Edelgard von Hressveld, which uh, who's the princess. 
an heir to the Adrestian Empire. You have Dimitri, um, Bladed, Blathed, Bladed, something like that, who's heir to the Kingdom of Fargus up in the north. And then you have Claude von Regan, who is heir to the Leicester, Leicester, Leicester Alliance, um, because that's ruled by Dukedom. If you've played Fire Emblem 4, just, he, he's the, he's Ostia. He's basically Ostia. <laughs> um, how they're in charge of the Fere. No, Fere is Eliwood's area. Anyway, you know what I meant. So you pick between these three budding 17-year-olds and to train their class, to help them grow, to help them learn, and intrigue, magic, mystery, and death happens depending on which route you pick. They're kind of similar, but also very different at the same time. The first half of the game when you're at school is literally the same, except with slightly different character interactions and finding out different things. Um, one of the big baddies of the first part of the game is the Flame Emperor, and depending on which route you choose, finding out who that is is wildly different. Um, it's the same person each route. It's not that hard to figure out who it is, um, depending on the route, except Golden Deer. Golden Deer doesn't... <laughs> I figured it out because of how the character speaks. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Is this? And then I was just like, it can't be. They're not going to do that. And then it was. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. But on the other two routes, it's very obvious, depending on what part in the game you are. And then the second half of the game, the war phase, because, whoa, a tactical RPG in medieval settings has a war in it. Whoa, is very different. Um, there's actually four routes in the game instead of three, because one of them has a split in it based off of um, how connected you are with one of the characters and whether or not you do something before a big plot twist. Um, specifically when you find out who the Flame Emperor is. So, and then you unlock a secret fourth route, which actually isn't that good. I kind of wish they didn't. <laughs> they didn't make that route for many reasons. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty cool game. I enjoy it. I'd give it an 8 out of 10, maybe 8.5. If that secret route wasn't there and they used that time and energy to pour into the other three routes to help make them more unique because the fourth route, well, which one is the fourth route? Is it the incom in really incomplete one or is it the finished one? I said the incomplete one was the fourth route. So the third route, two of the three fully done routes are very similar to each other. They just have a different way of seeing it, a different perspective of seeing what's happening, and different final bosses. And they could have used that time to make those routes much different from each other, which I would have appreciated, seeing as how one of those two routes is my favorite 
and that makes the other one my least favorite just because of how similar it is to it. What really makes it my favorite, one of them my favorite, is the characters in it. Um, and then I'm, <laughs> I'm trying so hard not to reveal too much about it, but if you're going to play the game and haven't played the game yet, or you've got the game and you don't know who to pick, if you're looking for... Hmm, that's the best way to say it. If you want to know just all of the lore, all of the background, all of the stuff about the continent of Foodland, then I recommend the Golden Deer route or Claude's route because that'll give you all of the background of the world. But if you're interested in a specific character, or specific lord in of the three, then I would... I'm going to turn this down a little bit. All right. Then I would just pick that house. But if you care about lore, go with Claude's route. If you care about um, waifus, and Edelgard is your waifu, just go with her route. Um, or if you want the game that has... If you want the route that has the most story conclusion or the most fulfilling arc, like story arc in it, then go with the Blue Lions or Dimitri. Because... I think that that's probably the first route they made and the one that they base a lot of the first mm, the first half of the game on. I think they made the blue like all of the cast members or at least the Blue Lions cast and had their ending planned out and then they based the first half of the game off of that. Or something very similar to it. Once you've played the game, you'll understand what I mean. Or once I explain more of it, you might understand what I mean. So, yeah. Uh, or if you're just going for Husbandos, I think Claude's the best Husbando in the game. Dimitri comes pretty close. But then, I just love Sylvain. So, um, <laughs> go for the Husbandos, girls. Or boys. Uh, except, if you're a boy, there aren't that many gay route gay pairings. There's only like two actual gay pairings and then there's two platonic male pairings which sucks. <laughs> and for the ladies you have you have some waifus you can pick from as well. Not as many as I would have liked, but you know, I'm not gay, so I don't it doesn't really matter to me. I have my husbandos. And for everyone who might look at the cast and say, oh my god, Claude's gay or bisexual. He's not. They didn't do it. They didn't let him be bisexual. Edelgard's bisexual, not Claude. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to do it to you. Nintendo did it first. Don't hate me for telling you. And now we're going to get into the spoilers of the game. So I know I probably didn't actually tell you that much about the game so far, but that's because I don't want to spoil it. So, if you care about spoilers about Fire Emblem Three Houses or anything to do with it, click away. This is the end of the episode. Um, thanks for joining me. Hope you don't mind that I spilled all of your tea all on the ground, especially if you're that dude with the mountain climbing backpack. This is M. I'll see you later. Alright. Did all of our spoiler scare people leave? 
I hope so, because here I'm just gonna say Edelgard's the Flame Emperor. She starts the big bad, big bad war that end that lasts for five years before Byleth comes back and just destroys everything. There, I said, ruin it for you. I'm sorry you decided to still listen, <laughs> but yeah. So Edelgard's route is the one that has the the splitting path. Um, one route you side with the church or the school that you're teaching everyone in and the other one you side with Edelgard um and Edelgard's route's the one that's the least fleshed out now that I'm not afraid of accidentally spoiling anything I'm gonna go a little bit more into Fodlin so Fodlin has this thing or this religion called the Church of Saros where their goddess who also is housed in Byleth, which gives you the power to turn back time in gameplay. Um, yeah, weird, I know. Uh, <laughs> is apparently gave every gave certain people these abilities called crests, which is another gameplay mechanic, which are blessings for the goddess. And if you have a crest, you're basically a noble or you've come from a noble bloodline. Um, if you so, yeah, there's a noble system, there's an aristocracy, and most of the nobles have these crests. And it's kind of their way of, like, of separating the commoners from the nobility, and people do scummy things to keep crests in their family, or they'll... If you're, like, say, one of the characters, Sylvain, he has a really... His family has an issue where he had an older brother who... What, who didn't have a crest and then Sylvain was born with a crest and his older brother basically lost his entire inheritance and hated Sylvain, tried to kill him until eventually his brother went off and left and became like a leader of bandits. There's a chapter in the game where you have to kill his brother and get back something that he stole from the family. It's really intense. And then you have other characters like Mercedes or... Uh, Marianne, who have issues with their families and their own upbringings because of what Crests have done to them or have done to their families and the way that people hold them so highly. Um, so, what's the best way of explaining that? So that's basically how the world's set up and that there's three different ruling powers in the churches. I don't think it's equal to the ruling powers. I think the game tries to make you believe it's on the equal playing field, but it feels significantly smaller since the church itself is also split up between the central church and the, is it the Eastern church or the West? No, the Eastern church. And they have their own political issues within there. So while all that is happening and while you're trying to teach all of your students, all sorts of things, you have this secret group of the Flame Emperor and these really sketchy, clowny, goth, pay, like gray skin people who are doing all sorts of fucked up shit. They're doing experiments on villagers, they're kidnapping people, they're doing blood experiments. And I don't mean like blood experiments, like trying to figure out different blood types a la the boy band section of Black Butler, new arc that we're in. Well, old arc, because now we're doing something else with Mayrin. 
I mean, they're taking people's blood, and they're making people go crazy, and they're making these monsters called demonic beasts. It's pretty insane. Um, so that's happening in the background. Byleth's trying to figure out what's going on with them. And then you have the Flame Emperor, who's apparently working with these bad guys against the church, but also saying, I'm not with them. We need to stop them. And throughout all of this, at the big climactic point of the game, you find out that the Flame Emperor, who's been working with these people, is Edelgard. And Edelgard's route, it's a big, like, wait, what the fuck? Even though they make it super obvious by Edelgard literally saying, maybe one day the Flame Emperor will come up to you and reveal everything. Will you listen? And I'm just like, oh, well, I guess I already knew it was Edelgard at that point because I played Golden Deer route first. In Dimitri's route, you find out because the Flame Emperor drops a dagger, which Dimitri gave Edelgard, so he knows it's Edelgard, but he doesn't want to admit it. And the player's like, oh, oh shit, that means it's Edelgard. Again, at that point, I already knew because I played Golden Deer first, and then I played Blue Lions. And Dimitri goes fucking insane once it's fully revealed that, yes, it is Edelgard. And then in the Golden Deer, they're, they're really like, wait, what? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> I wasn't expecting this. Um, and then it just devolves, like, it goes off from there. And the t in the Golden Deer route, um, you're trying to, you know, keep Edelgard from winning the war she declares against the church and its allies, which the Leicester Alliance is, I guess, their allies. I didn't really understand why. I mean, I understand after having played her route, why she goes to war with all the other, um, countries it's because she wants to create a meritocracy where the power structure and who's in charge of the world or any nobles isn't based off a of bloodline it's based off of your own merit and your own accomplishments but at that point when I first played the game I didn't understand why her war against the church was affecting everyone else in the whole fucking world <laughs> on the whole fucking continent um so in Claude's route, you are helping him take down the big bad that is Edelgard, and then you also take down those who slither in the dark, who's also like her allies with Grayskin, and we just call them those who slither in the dark. Though so you don't find out about them until like the last two chapters, and I'm just like, oh, okay, sure, I guess we we keep going. <laughs> We're just gonna keep going here. Um, in Dimitri's route, it's a lot more personal because he and Edelgard are actually step-siblings. And um, Dimitri's father married her mother. So they're step-siblings and they know each other and they were pretty good friends when they were little until Edelgard had to leave because plot reasons. And then this whole thing called the Tragedy of Dusker, which was planned out by those who slid in the dark, one of their leaders, who's actually Edelgard's uncle in disguise. Well, Edelgard's uncle is not in disguise as someone who those slither in the dark. Someone from those those who slither in the dark, his name was Thales, Thales, something, was pretending to be Edelgard's uncle. And I know, I'm sorry, this is so confusing. Um, it's so confusing, so many names. 
and they just massacred everyone else in Dimitri's family. Like his father gets to beheaded, his stepmother apparently gets carted off and killed somewhere, though we later find out that she was also helping them so she didn't die and she like ran off somewhere who knows i think they say she ran off to like strang which is a country in the north let's see and because of everyone being killed including like his friend's older brother they blame this other nation called Dusker? Yeah. They blame this other country named called Dusker and do a, ba- from what I understand, basically a genocide of it. They kill almost everyone there and basically salt and burn the earth except for like a couple of people who weren't living in the country at the time um, and someone that Dimitri saves himself because he just wanted to, he needed to save one person or else he was going to go insane because no one would believe that when he said that Dusker didn't do it. Instead, he just had to watch them do it because he was the prince and the most wronged member. And, you know, actually, I don't remember why they made him watch it. I'm just making up shit, but he still had to watch it. (laughs) Let's see. And then you have, so... You have him who's gone crazy because Edelgard's family and fake uncle staged a coup in his country and blamed him for the murder of his uncle. So he gets put in jail and he's presumed dead for five years when actually he escapes due to the possible sacrifice of his friend, And he's gone fucking insane. And his whole route is about him coming back from his insanity, dealing with his PTSD of being the only survivor from the tragedy of Dusker, as they call it, when his family got killed. Finding out part of the truth, because he doesn't, he never finds out about those who slither in the dark. Taking back his country, his throne, and then finally killing Edelgard, his one-time close friend. And then you have Edelgard, which the fandom. I'm sorry I'm sniffling all this much. I thought it was over this cold, but I guess not. And then you have Edelgard's rap, which. <sighs> well, actually, let's go the, do the church route first. The church route is basically the Golden Deer route, except without dealing with those who slither in the, slither in the dark. Um, it's mostly just focused on finding the Archbishop Bishop Rhea and um, finding out a little bit of what's going on with Byleth, Byleth and why they're able to use the super holy relic. But you also find that out in Golden Deer. So it's not, nothing about it is unique except for the very final boss where you have to kill the Archbishop because she went crazy for whatever reason. She also turns into a dragon, so surprise, dragon. And then Edelgard's rep is you're the bad guy, and you're conquering the rest of the continent, (laughs) so you can do your meritocracy after you've murdered everyone. (laughs) I'm joking, but it's, like, also true, because you literally have to kill 
everyone. The only person... Technically, you don't have to kill everyone in the Golden Deer route. You um, can find a way to let them all survive. Plus, Claude, you you have to actually actively decide to kill Claude. So if you kill Claude in Crimson Flower, you're just a monster because the game lets you spare him. Not for the Blue Lions crew, though. You literally have to kill all of them. There is no... There's no way you're letting them all survive because they're all marked as commanders and that map makes you kill all commanders. And you get a really heartbreaking scene at the end of that map, regardless of if you regardless of the way you kill everyone. <sighs> and that's Fire Emblem Three Houses. And it's such a good game, and it's also a shame that it's a shame that the fandom right now is split and angry about Edelgard von Hressfeld. And yeah, last week, I last week, a couple days ago, I said I had words and emotions and things to say about Edelgard, and I and I do. I fucking hate her. I really don't like her character, actually. Calm, take a breath. I don't dislike Edelgard von Hressfeld. And uh, yes, I'm saying her full name because I fucking love her name. It just sounds really powerful to say. I don't hate her as a villain. As a villain and antagonist, Edelgard is probably... Oh, definitely in the top five of the Fire Emblem baddies we've gotten, especially in a long, long time. She's charismatic, she's intense, she's threatening, she has all the power you need. She has good motivation, she has a good tragic backstory. Um, and I really don't want to reveal her backstory. So if you don't want to know her backstory, just mute this for like 30 seconds, but basically um, she's she was the 10th child born of her family, and they all got killed in the experiments by those who slid in the dark to give them a major crest of the ma- a major crest. I'm just gonna go with that. Um, and she was the only one who survived. It shortened her lifespan, and she got white hair in there. Hopefully that was quick enough. That's her backstory. And so she teams up with those people, knowing everything that they've done and everything that they are continuously continually doing, such as what they do in Remire Village, which ends up with you having to slaughter most of the town, kidnapping different characters, kidnapping this one character named Flane who looks like she's 12, but she's actually a thousand years old, but it doesn't really matter because she's 12 and she loves fish, so leave Flane alone. <laughs> Uh, result doing stuff that results in the death of your father, starting a war that's killing thousands, all to all to reach her goal of a meritocracy. And the fandom is in, oh God, is going insane about whether or not she's a bad guy, whether she was justified in what she did, uh, whether she should have done other stuff. And honestly, 
I don't even think there should be a debate whether or not Edelgard is a villain because she is. <laughs> She's a bad guy. Like, she starts the war. She kills who knows how many people. She tries to assassinate Dimitri and Claude before the game even really begins. In the prologue, they're running around from, bat from bandits who she pays while disguised as a flame emperor to, um, to try to kill them. <laughs> so, I don't really... It's also a really stupid plot that never comes up again. Because she almost gets herself fucking killed. So that's probably why it never gets brought up. Um, she lets them make more demonic beasts in any playthrough that's not hers. Because, oh, the protagonist sided with her. She has to be better now. She has to be good now. She understands better things more now. It doesn't fucking matter. She still let them experiment on people and force them into becoming these awful, awful things. Um. Huh. And there's this huge argument about whether or not she was justified in her actions. And I don't know if it's simple enough to just say, oh my gosh, the ends justifies the means. Because if you think that, then no one's ever, no one's going, you're not going to be convinced otherwise. I think the real discussion about it should be, like, were those actions, did she even need to do it in the first place? That should be the real question that the fandom is talking about instead of whether or not <laughs> those actions were too extreme in the end for what she wanted to do. And after you play the game, you can make, you can ask me, you can, yeah, you can ask me, you can think about it yourself, whether or not you think she needed to do it. I don't think she needed to do it because the game never established the church who she's trying to get rid of as an active threat. They don't give them a huge army. They don't give them a huge amount of space. They're basically just a really strong militia that has to depend on its allies to defend it, which it does in all of the routes, even in Edelgard's own. The church would have been crushed if it wasn't for the kingdom of Fargus backing them up. And the church doesn't do anything extreme in the game at all. The only thing that people ever point to when saying, oh, they needed to do this because um, Rhea made the crest system and allowed the nobility to do all this other stuff. And Rhea didn't do that. Because I didn't talk about Rhea, Rhea's um, basically this big saint that's lived for a thousand years because she's a dragon. She can turn into a person. And she defeated this person in the past named Nemesis who came who came to her back her to her town and killed all of her family. Basically used their bones and organs to make these strong relic weapons that are in the game. And Rhea fought in a war and defeated him and told the rest of the world that the powers and weapons and the crest 
that they got from the blood, bones, and hearts of her family members were a blessing from the goddess and not something that was, you know, ripped from them forcibly <laughs> to ensure that the rest of her family, like the five other people who survived that, wouldn't be hunted down for that abilities, for those abilities. And honestly, so the families of, at least in my opinion, the families of the warriors of Nemesis's crew wouldn't be hunted down and killed for no fucking reason besides, you know, being related to these guys. So she basically just did it to end more fighting about it. She holed herself up in this church, in this religion, and she did... Now, this is the part that is fucked up. She did human experiments to try and bring back her mother, the goddess Sothis, who is inside of Byleth, which is why Byleth can use the super OP broken sword of the creator. And people point to that and her setting up that system and creating a church which apparently upholds that system as the reason why Rhea is evil and needs to be gotten rid of instead of, in my opinion, someone who is literally through her own twisting of history kept it so a lot of these characters who everyone's attached to could even be born in the first place by making it so their families didn't get hunted down or destroyed like some of her siblings wanted to do. She let them live. She let and just made a new church. Edelgard doesn't know this because Edelgard has a twisted, uh, I don't know if I want to call it twisted, a distorted view of the history because her view of it, her history that she's listened to is just stories that have been passed down her family line. Um, which was started by one of Nemesis's allies going to Rhea's side and helping her instead. And so it's a little messed up. You learn out and you learn in Edelgard's route that she doesn't have the tr the real history, and everything that she's basing it off of is kind of twisted. I don't know if that would have changed anything Edelgard would have wanted to do. I think it makes a pretty big difference because without Rhea's side of the story of her group's genocide, of the weapons being taken, and of her changing that history that way, it makes it go from oh, I just decided to make up this religion to so I can be like sanctified or whatever to oh, I did this so my family would stop being killed. Or I did this and I stopped a lot of this bloodshed and I didn't kill all of the of those who slither in the dark because I just wanted the fighting to end. Now, Rhea doesn't say that out and out, but I think the very fact that those who slither in the dark um, still survive and that her group just left them alone, shows that they were just done with the fighting. I don't know. It's a really complicated place to be in, and I'm really happy that Fire Emblem was able to make a game that has like such a divisive character in it. I just wish people would be kinder about it, because I know a lot <laughs> even myself, I get pretty heated when it comes to whether or not Edelgard's 
a villain or the bad guy because in my opinion she clearly the game even shows that what she is doing is wrong <laughs> in every route but her own she like everyone agrees what she's doing is wrong and she never come has a time where she realizes the truth of her actions oh my music stopped There's never a moment where she realizes the real history. There's never a time where she realizes what she's doing might be for the wrong. She just sucks it up. She feels her anger, her upsetness. She holds it in and she keeps going because that's all she knows how to do. Which you can, I can really appreciate that in a character. I can appreciate that in a villain that regardless of how they think, maybe wrong or right, they're still going to do what they think is right because every good villain thinks that they're in the right. Every good character thinks that they're in the right until something comes and shows them maybe that they're wrong and how they deal and adapt with that, whether that breaks them down or build, or they decide to build themselves back up. That's some good character development. And it's a shame that Edelgard never gets that for herself. Anyway, I realize that this has been like 30 minutes ranting about this section. Ranting about this in this Daily Nerd section. I apologize. I hope that you enjoyed it and didn't just like hate listening to me about this. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure this topic will come back up again, especially when more DLC comes out because I'll be motivated to play the game again and feel all my hatred. And eventually I think it will be cool to do like a husbando or waifu tier list. Or just talk about my top favorite husbandos or waifus. Do I even have waifus? I have favorite female characters. That's probably the closest I'm ever going to get to waifus. And at some point, we're definitely going to talk about Fire Emblem Heroes, the mobile game. Because I spend way too much time playing a mobile game. Way too much time. Oh my god. But on the bright side, because of that, I have a plus 10 Seth. And he's amazing also plus 10 halloween niles whoo that was that that mm, we don't need to talk about how many orbs that took (laughs) anyway guys thanks for listening thanks for hanging out with me i hope you enjoyed your snacks and drinks and i'm sorry for strip for spilling your tea on the ground told you not to bring it this has been m and this has been my black nerdy 20s